Looking at the letters of Jesus to the churches uh, in the book of Revelation, these are historical letters, these are actual letters written to actual pastors and actual congregations, um, but they are also very applicable to our lives today, and um, I'd like to read from Revelation 2, verse 12 through 17, Jesus says to the angel, uh, that would be the, the, the pastor or the messenger of the church in Pergamum, write, these things are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. That's important. Jesus says, these things are the words. This is something I want you to know about me, guys, Jesus says. I have a sharp double-edged sword. Verse 13 says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, that there are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. That's an Old Testament reference. Verse 15, he says, likewise, in the same manner, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's, that, that was their contemporary heresy, the contemporary deception. Verse 16, he says, repent, therefore. That means turn around, change your mind. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The title of my message today is... Dear Church, that's the title of the sermon series, but the title of the message is, Go and Get It. <laughs> I don't know if we have any go-getters in here today, but uh, this message definitely applies to you. Um, even if you're not a go-getter, I hope. I, this, this letter was written to an entire church, all age groups. There were old people, young people, uh, millennials, <laughs> uh, first century millennials. Uh, teenagers, six-year-olds. Uh, this message was written to all of them because regardless of how old you are or what stage of life you are in, there is always a chance for you to overcome. I love how Jesus says, to the one who overcomes. There's always an opportunity for overcoming. You know, you were, you were created to be an overcomer. You were made to overcome. That's why it feels unnatural when you are in bondage. That's why it feels unnatural when you are overcome by something else because you are not intended to be overcome by anything. You are intended to be an overcomer. Regardless of your age, if you're six years old, there is stuff for you to overcome. Trust me, I got a seven-year-old and I'm teaching her about the things she needs to overcome. If you're 22, there are things for you to overcome. If you are 75, there are things for you. And until you take your last breath, there's always going to be something for you to overcome. There's always going to be uh, something, there's always going to be an enemy, whether it's an enemy inside of you or an enemy outside of you. There's going to be something for you to overcome. Now, when Jesus writes this letter to these churches, uh, this particular church, the church in Pergamum, he has some, 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 some good affirmation for them. He says, he says, look, I love the fact that you were faithful to me in the days of Antipas my faithful martyr. Now, Antipas uh, was somebody who was written about in extra-biblical history. The early church fathers wrote about Antipas and his martyrdom. He died for being a Christian. He was, he was killed uh, by, by, by the Roman officials in Pergamum, or Pergamus, however you want to pronounce it, uh, because of his Christianity, because of his faith. And the way he died was actually quite brutal. Um, he was put into a, a giant bull. So um, there is a place of worship in Pergamos, and in front of that place of worship, there was a giant bull uh, uh, made out of iron. It was hollow, and um, basically the victims were, were, were bound, uh, kind of hog-tied, and placed into the bull in such a way that their head was basically in the head of the bull. Um, the back end of the bull was closed, and then they kindled a, a huge fire underneath the bull, uh, roasting the victims to death. And uh, the reason why their head was in the head of the bull is because that's where there were some air holes so that as they were screaming and moaning, uh, it sounded like the bull was kind of coming alive. And this was part of their ancient worship. This was part of their pagan worship that if there was anybody who, who worshipped other gods or false gods, 
um, or as they called atheists, <laughs> the Christians were first called atheists, by the way, uh, because, because they claimed to believe that Jesus was God, and these folks said, well, that's impossible, Jesus isn't God, therefore you don't believe in God. And so Antipas was martyred, and the writers of, of, of Christian history say that when, when he was martyred, that he didn't scream or he didn't yell at all. Instead, he was praying from inside the bull. They could hear him praying for the church at Pergamos, because Antipas was the pastor or what they would call the bishop of the church at Pergamos. And this is uh, about 92 AD that Antipas is martyred, and this letter is written in 96 AD. So it's been a few years since this traumatic event where they witnessed their pastor being roasted alive in an iron bull. And Jesus says, I want you to know that, 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 that I, I, I was there. Right? I was there when you lost what you lost. Regardless of, of, of what you're facing and what you're fighting, there are going to be times when, when you lose some things that are dear to you. There are going to be times of loss. This church lost their pastor, lost their bishop in a most brutal way. And Jesus said, I was there in that moment. I, I know what you lost. I, I, I am proud of Antipas that he was faithful. And that while he was dying a, a brutal death, he was praying for you all to be faithful. And he says, you know what? You have been faithful. You have not denied my name. And that's something powerful. By the way, uh, uh, persecution of Christians is not just an ancient issue. For those of you that don't know, people are being crucified right now for being Christians in the world. People are being burned alive right now for being Christians. Now, I know on Black Friday, when you're out trying to find the best deals, that's not the first thing on your mind. But you really ought to understand that this is the context that we live in, that Christianity, that Satan is always out to persecute Christians. He's never happy to allow Christians to continue to serve God and just go to heaven comfortably. He's not going to allow that to happen. And so the enemy is, is fighting against, in fact, Pergamos, Jesus says, is the place where Satan dwells. Now, that's interesting. This is the only time in history that I know in the Bible where Jesus actually points out Satan's home address. And some people think this is symbolic. Jesus doesn't say it's symbolic. He says, literally, this is the place where Satan dwells. You, and, and it's very possible that, that that's, that's absolutely true. You, uh, the Bible teaches that Satan uh, is not God. He's not even a God. He's just, he's an angel. He's a fallen angel, an angel that God created to worship him. And then he became prideful in his heart. And so Satan fell from heaven and landed on the earth. <laughs> and when he landed on the earth, about a third of the angels came down with him and they became what we call demons. This is a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, angel demon the uh, doctrine for you. And, 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 and Satan, though, he's, he's a created being. So he, he's not God, so he can't be everywhere at once. I, I was talking to one lady, and she was telling me that Satan had been appearing to her um, in the parking lot of HEB in San Marcos. And uh, he had been, you know, freaking her out, coming out behind cars and stuff. And I didn't want, you know, I, I, I didn't want to, like, invalidate her fears. I'm sure she was seeing something. But I have a hard time believing that Satan is in the San Marcos H-E-B parking lot. You know what I'm saying? Like all the things going on in the world, all the stuff going on in the Middle East and even in Washington, and he's hanging out in San Marcos in the parking lot of H-E-B. I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I said, well, maybe it's more like a demon that you were seeing or something, you know, because I don't know if, because Satan can't be two places at once. He can only be one place at a time. And so if he's going to be somewhere, he's going to be somewhere where he's going to have the maximum effect. And, you know, getting you to overspend on your groceries is probably not the biggest issue, you know. He's out there causing wrecks in the parking lot of San Marcos, you know. I mean, that's not really his agenda for the world, you know what I'm saying? So he might be somewhere else. I don't know. Uh, but Jesus points out at this point in time in history where, G where Satan held his residency, which was in Pergamos. He said, you're in the city where Satan lives. Satan lives there. Now, there are demons that he's sent out everywhere else, but that's his headquarters, and he not only says that this is where Satan lives, but he says that this is where Satan's throne is. So there's been a lot of talk and speculation about what exactly is Satan's throne. Well, uh, most scholars believe that Jesus is referring to the very place where Antipas was martyred because he says that Antipas was martyred where Satan dwells. And you can look historically where this bull would have been located. The bull would have been located at the front of what uh, the Pergamonians called uh, the altar of Zeus. 
the altar of Zeus. They built this massive altar. Um, I, I have some, some slides to show you sort of, sort of what the scale would have been. This is the front, basically, of the altar. And this is the actual altar. This is, this is not just, just a, a model. This is an actual, the actual altar of Zeus. This is the front of it. The bowl would have been located at the bottom of the steps, um, right in front of this altar. Now, there are multiple steps, and um, this is the full scale, kind of what it would have looked like. So the steps go upward, and then it goes into a rectangular shape area, and that whole center bit would have been filled with fire. That would have been the continual altar to Zeus. Now, Zeus is the Greek uh, version of the ultimate god, right? He's, he's, he's the head honcho, and, um, and, and, and the Pergamonians built uh, this altar to Zeus, which Jesus seems to imply, and most scholars agree, that Jesus says this is not just an altar to Zeus, but this is the throne of Satan. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you some sort of interesting facts about the throne of Satan just kind of to perk your curiosity. You can go home and study on your own. But this, this, this throne of Satan actually um, was rediscovered. It, 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 was, it was there carved. I mean, there, if, you, if you look at those friezes, like on the side of, of, the, of the throne, as you're walking up those steps, there are all these friezes that were carved out of pure marble. I mean, just beautiful. And, 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 and they would have been painted as well. So it's like 3D art. Um, this is one. This is the second most well-preserved um, ancient building um, from this era. Uh, this is this is just a, an immaculate construction. This is a beautiful building. Pergamus was very proud of their altar of Zeus, and for good reason. It's amazing. Every every dignitary would stop by the altar of Zeus just to see what they had made. And and Jesus though says this isn't just an altar to some you know pretend. Uh, Greek mythological character, Jesus implies that this is actually the throne of Satan. And so uh, Pergamus was, was closely tied uh, to the Roman Empire, and as the Roman Empire descended, so did Pergamus, and uh, basically fell into disrepair. And so bandits came through, and even some of their own people pillaged these places because they were, it was made of pure marble. So a lot of the, the friezes were chipped, like faces were chipped off, uh, and they would go sell the marble. Um, but it, amazingly, this, this was pretty well preserved until 1871, where, where an archaeologist traveled to Pergamus to find the altar of Zeus. And, and he, he began excavating, and he found bits of the altar of Zeus, and he petitioned the, the Ottoman Empire at the time if, if, he could, if he could unearth the whole thing and bring it back to his hometown and recreate it and, and, and create it just the way that it was and create an entire museum strictly for this altar. And the Ottoman Empire agreed, and this guy, uh, strangely enough, was his hometown was Berlin, Germany. 1871, the altar of Zeus is begun to be discovered. Bits of it are shipped back to Berlin. And something else, I don't know if it's coincidence or not, but something else very interesting happened in 1871. There was a young German family, had a little boy, they named him Adolf, and the Hitler family was very excited about their new child in 1871. Now this, 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 this unearthing, uh, this excavation took about, eight, uh, took about seven years. Uh, it was finally completed. All of the fragments were taken back to Berlin in 1878, which is also an interesting year because uh, over in Russia, uh, a young family was giving birth to a baby boy who would eventually change his last name to Man of Steel or Stalin. And Joseph Stalin was born in the same year that the throne of Satan was fully excavated and delivered to Berlin. Could be just a coincidence, but it is interesting that some of the most evil guys in the 19th century were born around the same time period as the altar of Satan was being unearthed for the first time in, 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 in several centuries and brought to Berlin. And so they brought it to Berlin and they constructed it in Berlin and they built an entire uh, uh, museum strictly for it. And they called it the Pergamum Museum based on uh, Pergamus, where it was originally located. The Pergamum Museum opened in 1911, and you might know that there were a lot of things going on in 1911 centered around Berlin. And, and the world is plunged into World War, what we called World War I, uh, which was up until that time one of the bloodiest battles of all time. And it's centered around Berlin. And of course, uh, uh, Germany lost, and um, they were strapped with all these sanctions. And the, the museum fell into disrepair. Shortly after that, they closed it down in order to literally build the entire museum all over again because the ceiling was leaking and the walls were all bad. And it took them quite a long time. The museum didn't open until 1930, which was an interesting year because that was the year when the Nazi party was elected second overall in their general elections. I think they got 30% of the popular vote. 
um, with their leading candidate, Adolf Hitler. Um, and so because of that, uh, the chancellor who did win the election appointed Hitler kind of to his cabinet, gave him sort of a, a not-so-powerful position just to appease the 30-some percent of the population that wanted him to be. And, and a few years later, mysteriously, that chancellor died, and Hitler said, I'll take over for a while until we have another general election. And of course, we know that Hitler never really allowed <laughs> another general election. He became the dictator-in-chief. Of Germany, and in 1934, it's a little history lesson. In 1934, Hitler said, I, "I need to have massive rallies because this is how I'm going to get my message across to the world." And so he talked to his architect as a young guy who 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 went to the Museum of Pergamum, and 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 collaborated with Hitler and decided that they wanted to recreate the altar of Zeus in Nuremberg for him to have his massive rallies. And these massive rallies are where he presented basically his, his hate to the world. And they wanted to design it in such a way that, 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 that there would be those steps and there would be the arches and all of that and that they would put uh, Hitler's podium right where the bull used to be. And this was very intentional. Hitler said, I want people to see me as a Greek God. I want people. And so everything about those rallies were, were constructed in order for people to awe-inspiring, like this is not a man, this is a God. And Hitler stood. And it's just interesting to me that a couple thousand years later, we have, we have one of the most evil people in all of history standing exactly where Antipas would have been martyred. And it was there in 1935 that, that, that he uh, presented what would be known as the Nuremberg Laws, which basically stripped the Jews of all of their rights. And it was there for the first time in all of his campaign that he actually mentioned out loud the, the words, the final solution for the Jewish problem. And of course the final solution was what would become known as the Holocaust. Holocaust means burnt offering. It's just interesting that at the very place where Antipas was offered up as a burnt offering, we had another evil man talking about offering up the entire Jewish race as another burnt offering. Coincidence, maybe, but I think it's interesting uh, that these evil things are corresponding to the reinstate, reinstating of the throne of Satan. And I think Jesus is drawing a parallel here. And the reason why I shared that little history lesson with you uh, is a couple things. Number one, it's just fascinating. Of course, if you Google the throne of Satan, you're going to get all sorts of weird conspiracy theories. Apparently, Obama is sitting on the throne of Satan, too. And I don't know. It's like all sorts of craziness. Um, but, but, but some of these, but there is something to it. It is something interesting, at least. And, and by the way, um, the Museum of Pergamum closed down. Um, in 2014 for renovations. It's going to open again in 2019. And maybe it's just coincidence that the same year that we are working on planting City Chapel, they shut down the Pergamum Museum. I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I'm just, I'm just saying. Maybe it's a, you know, we might as well close up shop, boys. They're starting City Chapel, so we're just going to close down for a while. Um, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I am letting you know this history lesson because, because the people in Pergamos, you see, they had a very, a very real understanding of the kind of evil that happens when a country gives place to the devil. They didn't need a history lesson. They didn't need somebody to say, hey, by the way, it's really bad for you. <laughs> they had a very real vivid picture of what kind of destruction happens when a country or a nation or a city gives a throne to Satan or a place to the devil. And, and, and we believe that the, that the devil is real. We don't believe the devil is running around in HEV parking lots, but we do believe that the devil is out to steal, kill, and destroy. And so any way that he can do that, the, I mean, there's, some, there's actually some other interesting things about the, about the altar of, of Zeus with regard to 1962, the Berlin Missile Crisis, but you should look that up as well. But it's just, it's just interesting to me that every bit of mass destruction can be centered around uh, satanic activity. That the devil is out to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And if, and if he can do that to a city, if he can do that to a country, he's out to do that to us as well. And Jesus is basically drawing a parallel. He says, look, you know how destructive it has been as Satan has come into your city. You know what kind of evil and bloodshed and hate that is spewing out from people because of the presence of the enemy, that he is out to destroy humanity. He is not out to help anybody. Regardless of what the temptation looks like, the end result is always destruction. And Jesus says, you understand this from a historical basis. You understand this in your city. But I want you to know that the same thing applies to your everyday life. 
You say, well, I'm not going to, you know, reconstruct an altar to Satan in my backyard. <laughs> and it is, certainly I hope you're not. If you are, please come talk to me. We need to talk. Uh, but, 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 but there, Ephesians chapter 4. We can pull up Ephesians chapter 4. This is, what, this is what Paul says. Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. By the way, Ephesus is, is close to Pergamos. And he says, he says, be angry. That's fine. But do not sin. Why? Because when you sin, don't let the sun go down in your anger. When you sin, you give place to the devil. You give a sort of throne, as it were, or a place for him to sit in your life, a place for him to have influence over your life. Do not give a place to the devil. Instead, let him who stole steal no longer. I mean, stop it. <laughs> Cut it out. But rather, let him labor, working with his hands. What is good? That he may have something to give him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Cut it out. Stop it. But what is good for, the, for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. What is he doing? He's, he's saying, look, we don't want to give place to the devil. And the way that you give place to the devil is by these things that you are doing in your everyday life. You don't have to build an altar. You don't, have to, you don't have to build an altar to Zeus. You don't have to build an actual throne for Satan in your backyard. But you can give him a place in your family. You can give him a place in your life. And the end result is destruction. The end result is loss. We see here that the church in Pergamos, they had such faithfulness. They had such zeal. They had such passion for God. But now Jesus is saying, I have a few things against you. Why? Because they have lost that. And so whatever you've lost, Jesus is basically telling the church in Pergamos, I want you, I want you to get motivated enough to go and get it. So it's, it's, it's not good to, 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 give a, to have a place for Satan, but it's even worse to give a place to Satan or give a place to the devil in your life. Uh, the second, uh, this, 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 the, the, if we could go on with, with Revelation chapter 2, I'd like to continue Jesus' letter. He says, he says first of all, look, there you see the destruction that comes from allowing Satan to have a place in your life. Uh, and so likewise, you have had some among you who are holding to the teaching of Balaam. Uh, and just, just quickly to give you a, a summary of Balaam, Balaam is an Old Testament character. I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. He was hired by Balak to curse the people of God. And so Balak, Balak said, I want to fight against the Israelites, so I, I want to hire this prophet. And Balaam was a real prophet. I want to hire this real prophet to curse the people of God. And so Balaam shows up, right, and, and he receives the money from Balak, and, and he's looking over the people of God. He's, from the, he's standing far off on this mountainside, and he starts prophesying over them. And instead of cursing them, he starts blessing them. And Balak says, hold up, dude, like I paid you to curse them. Why are you blessing them? And Balaam's kind of confused because Balaam's like, well, I guess you don't understand how this works. Like it doesn't, like the prophet can't just say whatever he wants and then that's going to come to pass. The prophet simply sees what is and just says it. He sees what is in the spirit realm and he lets you know what it is in the physical. And so he tells Balak, he says, man, like, I can't just decide to curse them because they've already been blessed by God. They've been blessed by a higher power than me, so I can't curse them. And Balak gets frustrated. He says, well, I paid you all this money so that you could come and curse them. And Balaam says, okay, okay, okay. So, so just so that I can keep the money, let me, let me tell you how you can actually curse them. I can't curse them. But you can actually do something that would bring a curse on them. And he says, this is what you can do. You can get them to sin against their God. Convince them that it is okay. Convince them that, 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 that these things that their God has told them not to do, that they can actually do. Get them to compromise in their life. And then the blessing will go away from their life. And this is, this is interesting because I've talked to many people, and, they, and, and, and especially in like charismatic circles and in, and, and in the church, we have a lot of talk about curses and blessings. And, and, and many, many people live in fear of being cursed because they just, they just don't want to be cursed. And so, and so we get into all sorts of superstition because we don't want to be cursed. But clearly Balaam is teaching us that if you are blessed by God, you cannot be cursed. If you're blessed by God, there's no curse that can come against you. It's, not, it's just simply not going to work. I had one lady tell me that she was told that she couldn't go to movies because if you sit in the seat in the movie theater, the person who sat there before you might have had like a demon. And then if you sit in their seat, then that demon will like jump on you and, and, uh, and you'll, be, you'll be, you know. I said, that's not how this works. Like, that's not how any of this works. You obviously, it's, it's, I mean, demons are not like the cold. It's not like the flu, right? It's not a virus that you catch when someone sneezes in front of you. Like, that's not how this works. Like, like these, 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 these actual spirits, they have actual laws. They abide by the laws. They're very legalistic. 
they don't come into your life uninvited. They never come into your life. They cannot come. If you are blessed, you cannot be cursed. If God has spoken a blessing over you, you need to get rid of that fear that somehow if you don't, if you don't, like, like I know people like, like when they're driving over railroad tracks, like they lift their feet off the, the floorboard of their car. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> okay, some of you have no idea. But apparently, like that's to avoid the evil spirits that are on the railroad tracks from people who had died on the railroad tracks. They'll get up in your feet, apparently. Like, I don't know what that does to your feet, but it doesn't sound good. So they just to be safe, like nobody believes this stuff, but just in case, like the same reason why you share those dumb posts on Facebook that, you know, if you don't share it, well, I might be cursed. And if I do share it, I'm going to find $20 in five minutes. Oh, I guess I'll share it. And, you know, it's like, it's just, it's just a just in case kind of stuff that shows that we don't really know how blessed we are. Because we lift our feet when we go over railroad tracks because we're concerned that maybe, just maybe, just maybe, the blessing of God is not enough for me. And we get little Oho eggs and, and, uh, oh, oh, you know what that is. Okay. <laughs> get, a little, get a little pregnant women putting keys in their underwear. I don't know if you heard about that one. Honey, have you seen the, okay, you're driving. Um, and that's just, you know, that's just weird. It's just, it's just, we got all these wacky things that are passed down from generation and we do it just in case because we're living in fear that maybe the blessing of God is not enough. But if you are blessed, you cannot be cursed. You cannot be cursed. Drive over all the railroad tracks you want. Put your key wherever you want to put it. Your baby cannot be cursed. Your family cannot be cursed. Your life cannot be cursed if you are blessed. But many times we live in fear because we have, we have bought the lie of Balaam. <laughs> and, and, and Balaam told Balak, he said, look, if you can just convince people to compromise a little bit, if you can just convince them to bend the rules a little bit, if you can just convince them to, to, to yes, 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 be passionate for God, yes, follow God, but allow a few other things in your life also, then the blessing will go away. And then they won't be blessed anymore. And then you can do all the curses you want. You can do all the hexes you want. You can do all the whatever you want to do, you can do because the blessing will be removed. Because, because the, 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 the key to your life and mine, the main question of all of our lives is who is on the throne of our life? If you have a throne to Satan, and I know none of us would admit to that, but if you have a throne where Satan is on the throne, then, then, then all of your blessing is dependent on the one who is on the throne of your life. All of your protection is dependent on the one who is on the throne of your life. All of your confidence is dependent on the one who is on the throne of your life. I was talking, I was talking to Madden uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, for, for our bedtime stories, a lot of times I just tell my kids, you, you, you just pick an age and I'll tell you a story of my life from that age. Because um, they like to hear about when dad was younger, because apparently that sounds like a fairy tale, like dad was never younger, he was always old, you know what I'm saying? And so I said, no, no, I have a really good memory. You just pick any age, really from three on, three years old on, I can give you a great memory about that. And so Madden, Madden, Madden was asking about the age 12, and I saw 12 was a great age because 12 is when um, God called me to ministry, God called me to be a pastor. And so I shared the whole story with her about, the, about, about just experiencing, hearing from God, knowing that's what God was calling me to do, and, you know, and, and just all of that kind of thing. And so at the end of it, you know, I thought she'd be all inspired, and you know, that, that's why I'm a pastor today, honey, because when I was 12, God spoke to me, and that's what, like, that was the course of my life from, from right on then. And, 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 and when I was done, I thought she'd be inspired, but instead she said, well, like, couldn't somebody else be a pastor? I said, I said well, yeah, there are lots of people that would be much better pastors than your dad. Absolutely. There are a lot of people. And she's like, and I said, but why? And she said, well, because, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of hard being a pastor's kid. She's so selfless. She's just so, she's thinking about me all the time. It's so, so chip off the old block. Um, she's, it's hard. I said, what do you mean it's hard being a pastor's kid, right? And uh, she said, well, because, you know, we got to, like, go to all these houses and go to the hospital. And she said, well, except, like, Natalie and Jeff's house and the Jones. She named some Joneses and a few houses that she likes to go to. She's like, but, you know, there's other... And I said, well, honey, like, when God calls you to something, he doesn't call you to what is easy. He doesn't call you to what you want to do naturally. 
He doesn't say, hey, I noticed that you're just, you, just, you, just, you just love playing video games all day, 12-year-old Harry. So what I want you to do is just play video games like for the rest of your life. You're going to live with your mom and dad. You're going to have this great spot in the basement. You're going to play video games for the rest of your life. It's going to be awesome. Video games, Starbucks, ice cream, pizza. That's the rest of your life. Now, he let me keep the Starbucks, the ice cream, and the pizza, but I had to put down the video game. And he's, because God doesn't call us to what is easy. And, and, and I said, but honey, like the ultimate thing is this is what God called me to do. And you can only have one boss in your life. So what am I to do? I, I don't I don't really, like, I can only have one boss. And if God is my boss, then I'm going to do what God says. And if I'm my boss, then I'm going to figure out what I want to do. But if God is my boss, I have one response to God. And that is yes. That's my one response. Now, if I want, now, now if I, if, if I want to take him off the throne of my life and I want to say, yeah, that's a great idea for somebody else, um, and I want to sit on the throne of my life, then, then, that's, then that's fine. Like, I can do that. But that is what I'm doing. And you need to understand that every time you make a decision to take Jesus off the throne of your life, that's exactly what you're doing. And these decisions are not in a vacuum. They don't, they don't, just, they don't just happen and then go away. These decisions are building your life. These decisions are building the city of Pergamos. Pergamos became the violent, hateful, awful city, that dark city that it was because of the place that it gave the enemy. And the same is true for us. These things compound, these things build. My office is in Buda and it's right next to a, um, a weight loss clinic. And I have a very thin door between my office and this weight loss clinic. There's some lovely ladies that run it. And um, I tried to get them to come to City Chapel, but they, they went to another church. So um, anyway, so we're, we're hoping that they're going to get to heaven. But they, they, they run this. They run, they, just kidding. Uh, they, run this, uh, they, they, run, they run this weight loss clinic. And so because the door is so thin, like I hear like everything, you know. And, and it's so funny, actually, as I listen to their stories, it's so similar to me as a pastor, right? Like, like their job and my job is so similar. They're trying to get people healthy physically. I'm trying to get people healthy spiritually. And it's like, it's so similar. Like they have some of the same conversations, right? Because like, like, like just in marketing, like, like if, if you are a weight loss specialist, like you can't just go out on the street, find somebody and say, hey, you're morbidly obese. You need what I got. Like, they can't do that, right? And so, like, I, I hear them talking all the time about how can they bring in more clients, and that's what I'm talking about. How can I bring in more people uh, who need what we got? But you can't just, like, walk down 6th Street and be like, hey, you're jacked up. You need what I got, you know? It's, it doesn't work that way. I mean, you can do that, I guess. Uh, I actually have had some street evangelism that did work, but most of the time, that's pretty offensive because people aren't ready to change. So, you know, walking up to them in the, in the cookie aisle of HEB and saying, hey, you need what I got, is not the best approach for a weight loss clinic. Because, well, they know that they need what you got and they're not ready to get it. <laughs> they, don't, they don't want that. They like their, they like their cookies. And so, and, so, and so even the marketing, you basically have to get your name out there until people are ready to come to you. The same thing like a church. Like you kind of have to wait until people are ready to say, you know what, I'm ready to turn my life around. I'm, I'm ready to get serious. I'm, I'm ready to go for God. I'm ready to, because, because you know, the, like the, the initial interview is so funny. Like the, the new people, they come in and they're like, I've been doing this. I've been eating this. I've been going, you know, I haven't been exercising. I haven't been, I've uh, been doing, and, and, and I can really sympathize because all the stuff they eat, I enjoy as well. And I'm like, yeah, man, that's good stuff right there. That's great. That's what, but you know, all these bad decisions they've been making and it's got me to here and they are, all right, so hop on the scale. So then they, they, they hop on the scale. It's like, maybe they're like 230. And so they're like, okay, so what's your goal weight? Now, well, back in high school, I was at 170. I'd really like to get back to 170. Okay. So let's make a plan. This is, you know, it'll take you about six months to get back down to 170. And then, and then this will be your aftercare. And it's really, it's really pretty cool. Just the way that they, 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 they lay it all out. They give them a goal and they, they leave motivated and then you hear them come in the next week and they're like I'm so hungry I'm hungry all the time like this tiny little meal that you give me is just not enough you know and, I, and I, I'm feeling for them right because I'm like yeah like I like you know I want you know a Reese's peanut butter cup blast at midnight from Sonic with the peanut butter funnel down the middle like that like I, I know what that's all about like that's good stuff like you know and so and so I'm feeling for them but they're they're in they're in this struggle because they have a goal but in order to reach the goal they have to change the way that they've been living 
when you give a place to the enemy, he doesn't just, he doesn't just take you on your little time out and your little vacation. He sticks with you. And the effects of that time out and the effects of that walking backward, that the, the ground that you are giving to Satan, you are then going to have to fight Satan every inch of the way because he's not going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, so I'll just go ahead and back up to the place I was before because, you know, that was kind of our agreement. You, 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 you have to understand that you, the only way for you to gain ground is to fight for it. And I want to encourage you to go to fight against Balaam, to fight against that idea of compromise, to fight against that idea of taking a break from following God, to fight against that because that is the enemy's tactic to destroy you. The enemy cannot defeat you swinging a sword. He cannot defeat you in battle because he's already been defeated 2,000 years ago on Calvary. He cannot defeat you in battle, so he will attempt to lure you to a negotiation table where he, you, can, you can barter. You'll give a little bit, take a little bit, give a little bit, take a little bit because he can't beat you in battle, so he'll try to get you to the negotiation negotiation table and negotiate a reasonable settlement with you. But you always lose at the negotiation back table. You always lose. You seem like, oh yeah, it's just, you know, we're not losing ground. We're just kind of staying steady. That's, there's no such thing. The enemy is always, always going to rip you off at the negotiation table. He's going to overpromise and underdeliver. The fine print is going to be there and it's still destruction. Just ask the city of Pergamos, ask Berlin, ask anyone that has given Satan a place in their life, and they will tell you that the negotiation was a lie. The fine print was there. There's a story about, it's an old fable about a little boy walking through the woods, and, and he comes across a snake, and uh, the snake, of course, in fables, they talk, and so the snake says, hey, can you give me a lift? I'm trying to get to the other, other side of the wood. And the little boy says, well, I would, but it's kind of weird because you're a snake. And so, you know, you bite people, and um, so I don't, I don't want to give you a lift, like, in my pocket. And the snake says, no, 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 no. Like, that's all the other snakes. Like, they, 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 they give us good snakes a bad rap. Like, you don't understand. Like, you know, you can't judge me by the way I look. You know, it's, uh, he didn't really say that. But, you know, that, 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 was, that was the, the, the 2016 version. It's, well, no, it's just the, you know, that's just, that's, that's just the, the, the rap that we get. But, no, I'm actually a good snake. Like, you just put me on my, in your pocket. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just uh, get, get a lift all the way to the other side. And they, they, he bartered and argued with the little boy. And finally, the little boy said, okay, fine, I'll give you a lift. And so he puts him in his pocket and he walks about 10 feet and the little boy, you know, gets bit in the leg and he's like, ow, and he throws the snake out and he says, you said you weren't going to bite me. And the snake says, well, you knew what I was when you picked me up. And that's what sin is. I don't care what the negotiation is. I don't care what the promises were. I don't care what the carrot on the stick was. You know what it is when you pick it up. It has one intention. And that is to destroy you and to destroy your family and to destroy your confidence, to destroy your faith, to destroy your ability to move forward. That is the one and only intention of the enemy. And so if you want, if you want to have what God has for you, you have to keep moving. You have to keep walking. You have to say no to the snake. Jesus finally says what he's going to do if they don't repent. He says, I'm going to bring my two-edged sword against you. And this is my advice to you. This is my instruction for you to how, how you can. Because many times we end up like the church in Pergamos where this is all interesting information, good information, if we were on the front end of it. But many of us have already bought into the lie of Balaam. We have already stepped into compromise. We are already in the middle of the consequences of that compromise. Just like the church in Pergamos. They had already bought into the lies. They had already compromised. They had already given place to Satan in their life. And Jesus comes to them and says, hey, this is very dangerous. And they're like, yes, I know. What can I do about it? And Jesus says, well, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring my sword, my double-edged sword. In Scripture, the double-edged sword is, is uh, symbolic for the Word of God. It's symbolic for the Word of God because the Word of God has two edges to it. This, this double-edged sword means there's a sharp edge on each side. And in the actual, in the original language, it literally means double-mouthed sword. Two mouths to the Word of God. There's the mouth of heaven, where Scripture says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's God talking to you and to me. That whatever you've done, whatever you've been caught up in, if you confess your sin, that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us. That's God's word, but that's only one side of the sword. 
That's only one mouth. The other mouth is your mouth. The other side of the sword is my mouth, is your mouth. Because when Jesus, when, when 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, the word confess in modern language just simply means to say, okay, I did it, you know, I confess. I, yep, yep, I did it. But that's actually, that's, that's not what the word confess means in the original language. In the original language, it means to say the same thing or to repeat back the exact same thing that is said from heaven. So, so, so the, 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 the one edge of the sword is the word of God, but the other edge of the sword is to come into agreement with the word of God in your life. And this is the source. This is the source of all compromise. As soon as you start to come into disagreement with the word of God in your life, you begin to compromise in areas that you didn't think you would compromise in. And what Jesus says the way back is to simply start agreeing with the word of God again, to start saying the same thing that God says, especially when it comes to your sin. If we confess, if we say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin, what does God say? God says our sin is destructive. God says our sin is evil. But God says our sin is paid for. And so we have to understand, we have to say the same thing as God. And, and oftentimes the most difficult thing that I hear from people is that it's like, I just can't forgive myself, right? Like I, I've, I've gone too far, I've done too much. I can't, I've compromised too much. I've done stuff I didn't think I would do. And, and I cannot forgive myself. To which my response is, oh my goodness, oh wow. <laughs> Hold the phone, we're in big trouble. You can't forgive yourself? Quick, quick, quick. Let's just let's, let's get on the phone. Let's, let's call up Jesus. He can get off the cross. He doesn't need to be up there because, I mean, yeah, he wants to forgive us. Yeah, his father wants to forgive us. But hold up. Somebody much greater than them is holding it against you. You can't forgive yourself. I mean, I'm pretty sure the Bible says that when we, that, that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that God's going to open the books and then he's going to hand it to you to translate for him so that he can know what to judge you on. I'm being facetious. But people act as if the fact that they cannot forgive themselves is a huge stumbling block to actually being forgiven. And you know why they act that way? Because whoever is on the throne of your life is the one who does the forgiving. Whoever, you will always kneel before the opinion of the one who is on the throne of your life. And if you are on the throne of your life, it doesn't matter what Jesus has forgiven you of. If you are on the throne, then you have to forgive you. And good luck with that. I don't know how people can forgive themselves. I can't forgive myself. I would never forgive myself. I know too much about myself. I know, I, I know too much about how deep the sin goes. It's not just an action. It's a pre-thought. It's a forethought. It's an afterthought. I, I understand all of this. And so in order for me to forgive myself, I have to submit to a higher authority that says I am forgiven. I have to put somebody else on the throne who says, no, 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 all of that is wiped clean by the blood of Jesus. My blood is enough for everything that you've done. And it doesn't matter if you feel like you're forgiven. It doesn't matter if you believe that you ought to be forgiven. You don't have to even forgive yourself because yourself is not the final judge of you. God is the final judge of me. And I will allow him, I will allow my judge to declare whether I'm guilty or innocent. He gets to choose. He gets to decide. And he said that if I come into agreement with him about my sin, that I would be forgiven. He said that his blood would not only forgive me, but cleanse me, purify me, wipe me clean, as if it never happened before. Which, by the way, is what Jesus tells the church in Pergamos. He says, to the one who overcomes, I will give him a stone with a new name. A new name means a name that's never been written before, a name that's never been known before. And he says it's not going to be a name that everybody else knows because this is not important to everybody else. It's important to you. You are going to know what I think about you. You are going to know what I call you. You are going to know the new creature that I am creating inside of you. You don't have to walk around and tell other people. Nobody has to prophesy this over you. I am going to speak it to you. Because that's, what, that's where compromise cuts. Cut, compromise cuts in our confidence. Even when other people don't know about our compromise. When we know about our compromise, it cuts our confidence. And God says, you know what? In the same place where you have sinned and where you have compromised, where you have fallen, I'm going to bring confidence and renewal and restoration in that same place, in the secret place. You are going to know. You are not going to have to try to convince other people. You're not going to have to try to put on a show for other people. You're not going to wait for the compliments to come in. You are going to know the change that has happened in your heart. And the best thing about these, these, these ladies and guys that are in this weight loss program, the best thing is not the compliments they get, but the feeling they get when they look in the mirror at the change that they have worked in their own life. Because it doesn't matter what compliments you get. What matters is what you see when you look in the mirror. That's your confidence. That's your self-confidence. It doesn't matter how many people think you're this or think you're that. What matters is what you think about yourself when you think. 
And Jesus says, I'm going to affect that spot. And Satan knows that. That's why he gets you to compromise in ways that other people can't see. Because it doesn't matter if people see it or not. It matters if you think about it yourself in that way. And he says, I'm going to restore those secret places. I'm going to restore that hidden place. I'm going to bring you back. And I'm going to bring you back exactly everything that you've lost. You are going to be able to go to get what you lost. So I want to pray with you this morning because many of us are in that place. Many of us are facing uh, December. It's so interesting. December is difficult for people dieting. It's also difficult for people trying to live right with God because there are so many temptations, so many things that you're facing. So it's difficult for people who have lost uh, loved ones this year. It's a difficult season of mourning. It's a difficult season of distraction. It's a difficult season of temptation. It's a difficult season uh, in all of these areas. And I know that, and I know you're facing that. And I know that many of us haven't had, sort of like the lady that was talking, she hadn't had a good November. <laughs> she'd, been, she'd been taking a break. She gained five pounds in November, just if anybody wants to know. She, she had not had a good November, and so now she's running into December, and she's like, man, I'm stumbling, I'm tripping, and now I'm coming up against this difficult wall. I cannot make it. And I feel like even in pastoring, that's what I'm talking to people about. They haven't even had a good November, and now they're facing December. It's like, I don't even know how I'm going to be able to make it. The way you're going to be able to make it is by coming to an agreement about what God says about you. That he says, if we confess, if we get on the same page with him about our sin, yes, it's awful. Yes, it's wrong. Yes, I deserve everything that I get. But yes, there is forgiveness and there is restoration and there is a new nature that God wants to impart to me. He wants to change me from the inside. Regardless of what people say about me, there is a new name that has never been written before, never spoken before, never known before. There is a new Harry that the world has never seen. There is, a new, there is a new you that hasn't even come into existence yet until God speaks it into existence and he's gonna chisel it in stone. not just confessing our sin, but if we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God has raised him from the dead, that we shall be saved. That is salvation to say the same thing about the Lordship of Jesus, that he is on the throne, that he is supreme, that he is in charge. He is, as I tell my kids, my boss. And so if you'd like to say the same thing as God about that right now,